So if you look over the outline that you have, there are no printed Bible verses. What that means is you should probably get a Bible and look along with the teaching. And where it says CF, period, that just means confer. It's a fancy Latin for consult or confer. Uh, look it up. You don't have to look it up right away. Some of them you may feel like you need to look it up right away. Um, but this really is designed for you to review as well in the future uh, after today. So the reason we're speaking about biblical finances in the Sunday School Hour today is for a while I've wanted to do a, a series of some sort, whether it would be you know, uh, some sort of cell group or Sunday night meeting or something like that on the topic of biblical finances and how Christianity relates to money. However, you know, there are many things to do in life. And so uh, organizing that has, has kind of been postponed. We've got some other things coming up this year that are going to supplant it. Um, so I, I felt like I could just do it all in one meeting. So get ready. We're going to go real quick through four main ideas. The four main ideas in what I'm calling general topics in biblical finances are these, the lordship of Jesus Christ, the central ideas in life and finance, and by central I mean some core ideas, not fully fleshed out but somewhat reviewed, that uh, relate to both the way that God has structured his world as well as uh, the, the realm of finance. Uh, many things in life are becoming increasingly specialized, technology for, for instance, but even so, even with all the high, high specification in certain skills or technologies or arts, uh, they still, the underlying principles which rule those dimensions of life are general such that we can make observations about the way that God has made his world and interpret that realm according to those rev revelations or general understandings. So by central ideas, I, I'm not going to be looking at you know, financial terms. I'm going to be looking at principles behind all of life, which help to orient the way we approach biblical finance in our thinking. We're going to look at some common dangers and temptations to uh, finance, and then finally we're going to look at a few practical means of introductory stewardship. Uh, last week in the sermon, I mentioned that there was a quote. I, at the time, I had forgotten who it was from. I thought it was from J.I. Packer. Could have been from J.I. Packer, but it wasn't. It's from a man named Abraham Kuyper. And Abraham Kuyper was a theologian at the turn of the 19th into the 20th centuries, and he's a wonderful theologian. He's quoted here on this page, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Think about that. He's not, Abraham Kuyper in this quote is not talking about the geographic region, he says, the whole domain of our human existence. The whole sphere, dominion, domain, culture, world, if you will, of the human existence is governed by and uh, by Jesus Christ, and he has a claim on it and says over it, mine. Everything that you have ever seen was created by God. You have never seen a thing that was not created by God. Now, admittedly, that was fashioned by a man or or a woman, uh, but it was not created by them. I'm uh, reminded of the quote that, or reminded of the joke where an atheist challenges God to make a, you know, an apple tree or, or a, you know, a fish or something like that. And 
he challenges God and they set the terms about how, you know, how long the scientist will be able to active, uh, activate his technology in order to sort of form this, you know, fake life. And at the beginning of the challenge, the scientist presents himself with all of his tools and technology and machines. And God immediately says, oh, well, wait a second. First, you got, got to get your own stuff. You got to get your own matter because all of it was made by God. Because it was made by God, God has claim to it. If you make something, you have claim to it. Christ, the word of God, was the person of the Trinity through whom the world was made, according to Colossians 1. And he is the heir, that is the recipient, the one who has the title deed for all of creation. Jesus Christ, in coming to die on the cross, replaces the first Adam as the last Adam. And as the first Adam was given over dominion and lost that dominion through his sin, Christ has redeemed that dominion, reinstated it for himself, and also given it to his church. So, in Revelation, John on the island of Patmos, as he begins his letter to the churches, he sees Jesus Christ, and he speaks of Jesus Christ in Revelation 1, 4, and 5 as the ruler of the kings of the earth. And I'd like to make the observation, if, he, if he's the ruler of kings, he's the ruler of things. Now, that's, that's poetic, so you'll remember it easily. But the point is, if Jesus Christ is the ruler over the kings of the earth, then that means he owns all the things they own. We're, we're a little bit deficient in our understanding of what a king is living in this culture because we don't have kings. We have presidents. Some of us, when we think of kings, we think of presidents that you just elect for their life. It's very different. In a, in a, in a monarchy, uh, even a constitutional monarchy, everything belongs to the king, and you are subjects of the king. You're not citizens of the king. It's very different living in a democracy. We don't really fully understand what it means to say the claims of the crown rights of Jesus Christ. It's very hard for us to get our minds around that sort of an idea. Christianity, therefore, because we serve a risen Christ who has claim over everything and every sphere of life, that means Christianity is not just about spiritual things. Christianity is not about what you do on Sundays alone, how you pray, how you read your Bible, how you witness with your friends, about some sort of inner hidden life. Christianity is a totalizing worldview which necessarily will produce a manifestation in the way that you live your life. Everything that you do is fruit of how you think, feel, and believe concerning God and his word and your calling on your life. All of it. Every single thing. Good things and bad. So, being a disciple, you are intending to submit your will to Christ. If anyone does not take up his cross, he cannot be my disciple, is what our Lord said. It, he's not saying that you can be a Christian, go to church, be a seeker indefinitely. Certainly there is a time to evaluate and the claims of Christianity and to become, become increasingly aware of your sins such that you eventually decide to follow him. But once you've deci decided to follow him, it's total. There's no going back. It's not as if you can say concerning Christ, I want your salvation, I want your blessings on the emotional dimension of your life. I, I even want the blessings of you, your grace on my finances, but I don't want to actually serve you with my finances. It's, it's impossible to be able to say that as a believer. So, understanding his rightful claims, we understand that Christ has claim on our money just as much as on our emotional life, just as much as our prayer life, how we think about all areas of life. They're all under Jesus Christ. 
So some central ideas in life and finance. This is going to sound to some of you like I am teaching a vocabulary lesson. But I'm intending to, by reviewing some of these words, which you'll see in bold on your outline, some of these words we're going to look at, and you think very wrongly about some of these words. It's a large enough audience that if I throw a dart in that direction, it'll land. Some of you have been so inundated by the culture on, the, on some of these terms we're about to look at that you are in need of rethinking and reevaluating the way that you see and relate to work, money, finance, life, etc. So I'm not intending to give you just a vocabulary lesson. I'm intending to talk about very briefly some ideas which shape the way that we approach money. Christians are not saved by doing good works. When you hear a, a message, specifically a Sunday school message, which is aimed at producing in the Christian maturity, you must remember the gospel. This message cannot be heard and by someone who is not fully converted to Christ, not in the grace of God, not aided by the, the Holy Spirit, someone who is truly alive and not dead in their trespasses and sins. If you are dead in your trespasses and sins, no amount of financial coaching will ever produce the sort of things that we need to produce in the Christian life if we're ordered to walk according to the, the calling that we've been called to. If you are a true believer, if you have been saved by Jesus Christ, you are not saved by your good works, you're saved in order to do good works. The difference is very important. You're not, you do not earn your salvation by doing good works, but rather you were saved in order that you could do good works. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says that you, you are saved by grace through faith, that not of yourselves, that is the grace and the faith are not from you, they were gifts from, you, from God, in order for what? So that you would walk in good works, which God prepared beforehand. So God not only called you, the election which we understand to be eternal past, God not only called you before the foundations of the world, he desired and has intended that there would be good things that you do, good works, Ephesians calls them, good works, and one of those types of good works is regular work. Work is a type of good work that the Christian should be doing. Work is not a product of the fall. Many of us, we approach our work as if the curse that God pronounces on the ground because of Adam's sin is the source of all work. We approach work as a drudgery. Every, every morning when we wake up and we're about to go to the office or go to our workplace or go to the store or the shop, we dread, we dread as we begin to mentally prepare, even going to work, and one of the reasons why is we think that it's an inglorious thing. It's, it's not something that's filled with dignity. It's not something that's a good thing to be doing as believers. That cannot be further from the case. Work was established before the fall in the garden. God gave Adam and Eve dominion over every living thing, as well as the whole earth, which he originally gave them authority over the garden to tend it and keep it. That was the command by God to Adam, to tend and keep the garden. And then after a significant pe period of maturity, it's my opinion that they were to extend the, the borders of the garden such that the garden was like a creeping uh, war of attrition, so to speak, over the earth. As in, Adam would cultivate, tend the garden through the bearing of children. He, there would be more workers, his offspring, who would extend the boundaries of the garden and extend the glory of God over the earth. Now, we know that that did not happen, so that's a little bit speculation, but I'm pretty confident that was God's goal 
or at least at the time it seemed to be God's goal. The point being that Adam was supposed to tend and keep the garden, and that was going to be the means by which God allowed him to overcome the temptation. God wanted to prove, though, his grace and glory such that that did not happen, which we can't go far afield into the reasons why. Your job should not be a curse on your life, and you should not relate to it as a curse. Although there are occasionally elements of the curse, that is, things break down, tools fall apart, you make a mistake. Although there are elements of the curse, your job should not be a curse, and you shouldn't relate to it as such. If you're to work on, as unto the Lord, you can't go to work thinking it's a curse, or else you should run from it, right? Godly work brings a return, and ungodly work does not. What, what do I mean by ungodly work? Imagine, for example, you were commissioned by the state of Ohio, so to speak, or, or some government, uh, to go around and advertise and sell lottery tickets. Think about this for a second. Your job is to go around and advertise lottery tickets. Now, I don't think it takes a very mature person to understand that selling lottery tickets does not produce a net benefit to the world. It doesn't bring a return. All it does is deceive people into hoping that they'll be a lucky, supposedly lucky person and, you know, get that right lottery ticket and then be given all of this money that has nothing to do with wealth or return or work or equity. It would be a terrible thing for that to take place. And so there are different types of work. There's varying degrees of work that's godly or ungodly work. Uh, we're not going to go into detail on that, but there is godly work, and godly work brings a return, generally speaking, and ungodly work does not. This is why I very strongly oppose the minimum wage arguments, mainly because they're attempting to force people who own businesses to pay others for a certain amount of money units or wealth, which we're going to look at in a second, money, uh, irrespective of whether or not they bring anything to the table, and simultaneously makes illegal any work that can't be done for that amount of money. For example, if you're paid by someone right now, there, we have many people in the city of Dayton, to go around, walk around the streets of Dayton, and sweep up trash. Now, that is, by mentioning that, I'm not saying in any way that that is an inglorious thing. That is one of the most needed jobs in all of the downtown area, because it's so dirty, because we, we all have this understanding. We have a, a very little understanding of private property rights and dignity of creation, etc. And so people just throw their trash everywhere. But at the same time, to assert that someone picking up trash is worth, or, or not worth, but rather is, deserves to be paid the exact same amount of money as, say, you know, a network technician or someone who is... I don't know, building a wall or a house, uh, what, what have you. It's just, it's ludicrous. The reason why is because people with unskilled labor, where jobs do not, they don't have a demand for those jobs, those jobs can be filled by many, many people. And so there are economic principles at work which war against the concept of a minimum wage, but mostly the reason why I'm against the concept of a minimum wage is because it's fueled by a spirit of entitlement, which we're about to look at. So, work produces wealth. It brings a return. Wealth is a tool that Christians should use in order to glorify Christ. You do not seek work, and you don't, don't decide the type of work that you're doing in order to maximally produce wealth. That's not the purpose of work, but it is one of the, the outcomes of work. Wealth allows for the funding of the church, 
endowments for education, patronage of art, investments in technology, charitable works of mercy and kindness, etc., etc. Think about what's going on in this room this moment. We are in a building that was made by an engineer, a blueprint draftsman, someone who went to school for years probably produced a template. That template was sold to a construction company. That construction company company was either commissioned to or bought a piece of land. And then they built a building. And we're all now here because of the technology that allowed them to build this building. Likewise, I'm talking in the physical, releasing a wave of air that's carried, a wave of, of, of sound carried on the air, which is hitting a microphone, which is causing little tiny impressions in a magnet to cause electrons to flow through a device, which is then taking those electrons and transmitting them again over the air to a machine in the back of our building, which is receiving those radio waves, which are invisible. That is mind-blowing. And none of that would be possible without work, wealth, investment, and technology. The very electricity which is fueling this meeting right now, which is helping to cause the lights to stay on, the sound to continue to be produced, is being generated downtown by a generator owned by DPNL, managed by software and people and investment. And that's constantly happening right now. Work which produces wealth, therefore, is the basic building block of culture. Without work, there can be no culture, and therefore we understand work to be a good thing. Wealth is a means by which culture is made, and without wealth, there can be no worship, because if you look biblically, all worship is costly. Every aspect, every dimension of worship in the scriptures always includes a sacrifice. It always includes either the death of an animal, the death of a person, the giving of money, the giving of the produce of the land, etc. All worship is fueled by work. Without work, there can be no worship. So, moving to the next page, we work for a return, not for money. This is why I said it earlier, it's going to sound like a vocabulary lesson, but it's important that we examine the fundamental principles behind which we approach money and finance. Money is, is supposed to be although it is not today, money is supposed to be a scarce, divisible, and standard means of exchange for value. What does that mean? It means that I have this thing, let's call it money, don't think of dollar bills right now, think of just some physical manifestation of a thing called money. You can think of Legos, that might be a little bit more real. Uh, at least there's one company in charge of making the Legos. Nevertheless, you can think of Legos, Legos are small, they're standard, they're evenly divisible, and they can easily be exchanged. Now, I'm not suggesting Legos are a good form of currency. The point is, <laughs> absolutely, Legos are the bomb. Uh, the point is that, that money is supposed to be regulated, standard, and an exchange of value. So by giving someone money, you're not saying, you know, you love them this much or... <laughs> You, they're worth this much. It's an exchange of value such that you can invest your time, energy in something right now, receive that money, and then take that money and over time exchange it with others for goods and services. That's the purpose and point of money. The Federal Reserve System in our world today, and if you don't know those three words, the Federal Reserve System, then you have a lot of homework to do. Uh, it is not money. The reason it's not money is it's not scarce. It is easily divisible, but it is not regulated or standardized. 
such that the U.S. Treasury, through the swapping of debt, uh, devalues the money that's sitting in your bank account right now. You're constantly being warred against. And the reason why, uh, as I say on the first page, the reason why the Federal Reserve System is so complicated, the reason why most of you don't understand it, is because it's dishonest. It is an intentionally dishonest scheme led to, uh, intended to delude the currency of the people of the United States over time uh, to, to reward the private few bankers who regulate that system. Now, that being said, we need to continue to move, uh, but those are some ideas. Work is not simply done for money. You're not working to get dollars. You're working to bring a return. And it happens to be the case that you receive a return for your work, and most often you're paid in dollars by an employer or by your customers if you run a small business. But there are many forms of work which never see a return in dollars. You can think of gardening. You can think of building your own house. Uh, that's a little rare these days, but that used to be, uh, you know, 300 years ago, that was the thing to do. When you arrived in Ohio, you would build your house. Usually you'd come here with a little bit of money. You would uh, receive a tract of land given to you by the government to settle that land with the agreement that you would have to stay on that land for five years. Well, it gets cold in Ohio, and, uh, you know, I, I love to highlight that fact. And if you don't build a house, you're going to freeze. So building that house is work, and it's godly work, and it brings a return even though you don't get dollars for that work until you sell your house or give to your children, which you won't get money for. But the, the point is that we approach work, and our, the way that our culture relates to work and money specifically is so wrong. It, it really takes its form manifest in the popular phrase, get money, get paid. And the reason I bring that up is because, not, not to say that that you know, is, shows that people who are using that phrase are ignorant or anything, but the idea behind that phrase is a spirit which just basically is relating to work only in order to get paid. Get money, get paid. That's the point. It's not to bring a return. It's not to bless your employer. It's not to create value. It's not to beautify and glorify the world. It's not to take dominion over the created realm, subject it to your energy and effort in order to, for you to bless others with it. And through that blessing, happen to exchange it for some unit of reward. Now, there are many forms of work called volunteerism, which don't ever receive any sort of return. So we're going to look at some more vocab words here in a minute. These are common dangers and temptations as you relate to money and you begin to go on a journey of seeking to subject your finances to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Greed is the idolatry of money and material wealth. You can be greedy and be poor. Many people don't think that's true, but it is. You can be greedy and be poor. You can also be rich and not be greedy. Imagine that. That's heresy in our culture, basically. Instead of using money in the pursuit of the joy of God, why do I say the joy of God? Because we have been created to glorify God. And as the Westminster Confession of Faith teaches at the beginning of its catechism, the systematic study and explanation for Christians, it asks the question of the believer, what is the chief end of man? And the response is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him. Glorify God and enjoy. The reason why we tie glory and joy or grace and joy is because they're inseparably linked in the mind and the heart of God. Instead of pursuing God 
in joy because we are his children, we begin to pursue money instead of subjecting money to glorify him. And we prove that we are enjoying God. We are proving that we are taking joy in God by our faithful use of that money, such that through the use, we demonstrate both to God and the world around us that our heart is in God and not in the money. Generosity is the opposite spirit of grace, uh, uh, greed. Generosity is the attitude that relates to money as a servant and a tool. If you are not being generous, you can really quickly understand that you do not fundamentally relate to money the right way. So God has invested his world with consequences. This is the principle of sowing and reaping. What you sow, you will also reap over and over again in the scriptures. But also, what you don't sow, you won't reap. The principle works whether you sow or whether you don't, which shows that it's not relating to the act of sowing, as the faith uh, prosperity preachers teach. If you don't sow, you don't reap. I have a garden. I have three beds out of four beds built. Guess how much fruit I'm getting out of the fourth bed? None. <laughs> Because it doesn't exist. I haven't sown. I haven't invested time, energy, in putting plants in the ground in order that they would bear fruit. I haven't tended that fourth bed. It remains unbuilt. And therefore, I'm getting nothing out of it but weeds. God has invested the world with the principle of sowing and reaping. It is immutable, and you cannot alter it. Laziness, therefore, is apathy concerning a return. It's unconcerned with reaping. Laziness is a, an attitude of the heart which basically says whatever happens in the future does not fundamentally matter because it's all about the present rest and glory. That reference in Proverbs talks about the person who is tossing and turning on their bed because they love their sheets. Every time I am almost ready to go to sleep, but I still have maybe an hour or two worth of work, I, I get really tempted to just lay down. And this happened to me last night. And as soon as I lay down, I, th I declared out loud, I love this pillow. <laughs> now, I assure you, brothers and sisters, I was not being lazy yesterday. That's not my point in bringing up that, that story. The point is, if you love your bed more than you love God, which is just a manifestation of laziness, that doesn't cause the laziness. The laziness is already in your heart. It's already in your life through sin and you subject that laziness, and you take that captive in order to glorify Christ such that you would beautify the world and extend his kingdom, laziness says, I don't care about that. On the other side of laziness, you might call it industry or diligence. Diligence invests now for a greater future return that is other-focused. Why is it other-focused? Because those things which are sown multiply. You put in one seed, but that plant brings forth multiple pieces of fruit. For example, a stalk of corn is fed by one grain, but each particular seed or kernel that you sow in the ground produces a stalk of corn with maybe up to 10, if it's really productive, 12, 13 pieces of corn. Each of those in turn have hundreds of seeds on them. Most of those will be consumed for food, but the point is that whatever you sow multiplies. And so if you're sowing, it has to be other-focused. Laziness is a consumption of current energy, time, resources on oneself, 
And diligence, industry, hard work, uh, good stewardship is investing such that it multiplies and it, it goes beyond your ability to consume it. Entitlement is the pride of the heart which says, I deserve it. You can sense this sort of entitlement, not just in money, but also in the way that you relate to circumstances. I know this is a very common temptation for me to, to in the middle of you know, a particular crisis where somebody's not doing what I want. The temptation is to think, oh, well, you know, I don't deserve this. Brothers and sisters, the scripture is clear. There is none who does good. There is no one who seeks for righteousness. We've all become like those who go around who are like serpents out of our mouth coming forth, lies, deceits, poisonous venom. All of our righteousness being like filthy rags when we uphold it before God. No one in this room or who has ever walked the earth save Jesus Christ deserves anything other than judgment. God has graciously given us the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's graciously sent his son and he's changed that. But that which has redeemed us does not create a sense of entitlement such that we deserve things. You don't deserve it. You may think you deserve it, but you don't. This, in my opinion, is the general nature of the political reality in this culture. Now, I'm not saying politics in general has to be consumed with entitlement, but in today's America, we are fundamentally a socialist thinking country, such that every special interest group, every group of people, whether it's a teacher's union, pensioners, uh, people who are you know veterans, whatever, Everyone is constantly lobbying for the government to give them things, whether it's the federal, state, or local government. And no one is ever focused on thinking about, concerned with the rights of others and the rights for others not to be taxed beyond what's necessary to hold some sort of general defense, the very purpose for which government exists. So that being said, this is a very subtle temptation. It creeps up in your heart. And every time it does, you have my permission to take a divine sickle, if you will, and cut it down. Charity is completely opposite of entitlement. It is a heart disposition which allows one to be other-focused. Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on the earth. He doesn't say, don't ever store anything. He says, don't lay up for yourself treasures on the earth. And one of the ways that we lay up treasures in heaven, which is the second part of his command, is by being other-focused as the pursuit, aim, and end of our work. Anxiety is a manifestation of a lack and the evidence of a trust in something other than God. So it's a lack of trust and it's trust in something other. It's a, it's a fear of, of the future such that the future will bring, bring a, a lack or emptiness or nothingness. The opposite of that is peace, which is a fruit of the Spirit. Now, these are some common dangers and temptations that face the Christian, and these are heart-level motivations, which are insidious, which require the active keeping of your heart through a watchful eye, by being aware of what's going on in your life, and by looking at these things, by having these terms, these ideas, which, which are in one way a pointer to the reality that God wants us to walk in, I'm not saying that he wants everybody to be millionaires. I'm saying he wants us to relate to money as a tool and not a God, not something that we serve. You must war against these wrong motivations 
and all, all the while at the same time continually walk in obedience concerning the good uh, aspects of life. It's my opinion that our geographic region is specifically plagued by a spirit of bribery, embezzlement, and theft. Now, there's a number of examples. I don't have the Dayton Daily News links on the page, but I have one for each of the stories. You can look at those and just think really briefly, that's an amazing amount, number, and frequency uh, of embezzlement and theft going on in our geographic region. I don't know about other geographic regions, but I, I think Dayton has a specific problem with this. There, there, we talk in, in, uh, in charismatic circles about spirits, spirits that operate over regions, geographic regions. If there were ever a spirit over Dayton, I think this would be it. It's insidious. And this, if you notice, is, is more than 10 examples of, um, uh, actually nine examples, nine examples just in the last three years. And those are the ones we've caught and prosecuted. These are all stories of people who've been convicted, not just alleged, not just there's an investigation into. And so it's kind of like turning on the light and seeing a cockroach in your kitchen. If you turn on the light and see a, one cockroach, you know there's a hundred. If you see two cockroaches, there's a thousand. The point being that the tip of the iceberg is what we've seen caught, exposed, and convicted. If that's the case, what more is going on? I, I'm, I'm scared. Now, the point is not to glory in their shame. I'm not bringing that up to say, oh, look at these bad unbelievers in our city. What I am doing is saying, we as Christians, as the body of Christ, must be, we're commanded to be by Christ, salt which stops corruption and light which exposes darkness and calls dead people, dead men, to obedience and faith in Jesus Christ. And through our prophetic and right use of money, we will be a prophetic witness. What do I mean by prophetic witness? I mean, through our witness, through the way that we operate towards finance, the way that we live in generosity, the way that we give, extend, beautify, volunteer, etc., we speak, we are speaking something to the culture that says we value something greater than money. That's what I mean by prophetic witness. I don't mean going down to Main Street and saying, thus saith the Lord although that may be called for it from time to time. Last page, practical means of introductory stewardship. Maybe you're hearing this and you're saying, John, this is great. I love it. What do I do? I want to encourage you. God's blessing is not haphazardly encountered. You do not stumble into God's blessing. You have to work for it. You have to earn it. You have to, uh, you have to pursue it. Luke 2.52 says that Jesus Christ grew in favor with God and man. I don't know about you, but if the sinless son of God needs to grow in favor with God, then certainly you do, and certainly I do. Why did Jesus need to grow in favor? I'm not sure. I don't understand the way that God works all the time, or most of the time. But the point is that Jesus grew in favor such that he carried himself in uprightness of heart. He worked his job, picking up his, acquiring properly his father's trade as a carpenter, and he produced things, and he grew in favor with God. And most of the time he was growing in favor, he probably was doing carpentry. He, he didn't start his public ministry. He didn't start doing miracles until his around, we believe, the age of 30. It doesn't say in the, the Gospels, but based on the timeline, uh, we think he was around 30, which means he effectively had about 15 years, probably more like 20 years, of mundane things. 
it's almost insulting. What I love about the doctrine of the incarnation is when you think about it, every aspect of the incarnation insults the rational mind, which says, that's the son of God. He doesn't need to do that. Think about this. You can test yourself in this. Think about, have you ever thought that Jesus actually went to the restroom? And you're immediately, half of you are now in the religious spirit because you're saying, oh no, he didn't. (laughs) The point is, if Jesus Christ fashioned, the one who fashioned trees is taking them, hewing them down, cutting them apart, fashioning them into pieces of furniture, if the fact that he did that, that should be able to speak to you about how you approach work. It, It wasn't beneath him. That's what the doctrine of the incarnation means. It wasn't beneath him. So, if you're to pursue God's favor, as Christ did, and I hope you are going to do that, you must intend to do it. The first practical means of intending to obtain God's favor on your life is to practically, faithfully steward your finances through tithing. Now, we've actually, I I personally have given a talk on tithing in the last, I think, calendar year. Um, Maybe in the last year to date. I'm not sure. Uh, But, well, those are the same thing. In the last 365 days, I believe I've talked about tithing. It's on the website. You can find it. Uh, If you need proof that tithing is still in effect, uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 9 through 14, there is no specific principle of Scripture which says if it is not directly repeated in the New Testament, it is not in in effect. There is no principle of Scripture at all. And also, even if there was that principle of Scripture, even if you adopted that hermeneutic, Paul explicitly says in 1 Corinthians 9, that we should live in the same way. And so he, he basically says it through, if those who share in the sacrifices, et cetera, et cetera, therefore, how will we live? How will we? And he's talking about ministers. The point is, if you're unwilling to be obedient to God in tithing, which is the first element of walking out biblical finance, then you don't need to do the rest of this numbered list one through eight on the rest of the page. And that is, by, by me saying that, I'm not saying that, you know, you need to uh, go all woe is me on me. And uh, you need to figure it out. You need to, to seek the truth, to be teachable and repent, and then do the rest of it. Uh, I'm not saying that, you know, you can't ever make progress in that area. If you don't currently understand why tithing is still required as a New Testament Christian, then take some time to search it out. And... After you do that, uh, you'll begin to understand that tithing is the means by which the average Christian contributes financially to the kingdom of God. Most of you will not run businesses which are then fully dedicated to funding or fueling and sending missionaries. Most of you will probably not work jobs which are being paid for preaching, paid for being a missionary. Most of you probably will not do anything like that, but it is the financial means by which most of you will contribute financially the kingdom of God. I'm not saying that you won't contribute in other ways, and this is actually a very insidious temptation, the giving of money to causes, but not ever the giving of time. That's another temptation that we face. So, some practical next steps in the pursuit of godly stewardship. Ask for wisdom from God to repent of wrong motivations. One of the things that you have to understand is that Christian obedience is principled and then your heart and your mind come along behind the principle as you get it right. In fact, godly faith is such that you continue to obey even while you're, through the grace of God, subjecting your heart, mind, and emotions 
to that teaching of God, which commands that obedience. For example, husbands who are tempted to cheat on their wives, they continue to obey even though the temptation is there while they work on the reason the temptation is there, which is indwelling sin. It, it makes no sense in any dimension of life to say, well, I'm not going to obey God because I'm not truly rightly motivated. That's actually a false doctrine, which says that faith is this some sort of inner hidden thing. Actually, faith is the, the trust which allows you to say, even though I can't see it, even though I don't understand it, I am choosing to respond to the Lord rightly, even while I work on my motivations. So, three, confess financial sin to a pastor or leader and ask for counsel. Four, make restitution to those you have stolen from. The reason why we know that the scripture, that Jesus Christ uh, intends to speak about the law concerning money as still being in effect is in Exodus 22, it says that if anyone uh, steals an ox from someone, he has to pay back four oxen, right? When Zacchaeus in the New Testament gets saved, he says, if I've cheated anyone, I will pay back four times. Guess what, brothers and sisters? Jesus Christ did not slap him in the face and say, brother, you're under grace, not under law. He said, good, salvation has come to this house. Jesus rejoiced in the fact that Zacchaeus was willing to do the law of God concerning restitution. That word itself is probably foreign to you. You may have not even heard it in the last few years, but restitution is a principal means by which God restores the world from the sin and the effects of sin that you've carried out. Make restitution to those you've stolen from. Five, find godly employment as opposed to ungodly employment. We've talked about that briefly. Don't just pursue something. I, every once in a while, I hear about these fellow programmers who are making killings on the stock market by writing some software, and that software just trades all day on its own. It's automated. And they're making millions of dollars, pulling it down and spending on whatever. There's always the temptation you will always find in every dimension of life. There's always a temptation to work in some way that is not godly work, that doesn't bring a return, but instead just nets you some cash. Don't be interested in that. I think that's the First Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12 passage. Those who seek to be rich pierce themselves with many pains. And fall into a snare. It's terrifying. Make a plan, verse, uh, verse uh, number six, make a plan to eliminate debt and save for the future. Seven, learn about financial math. Imagine that. Imagine that your discipleship, your following Jesus Christ, actually forces you to open a textbook. Imagine that. If you do not know the difference between APY and APR, then you need to learn that difference. As, as a believer who has been given investment by God, been given money by God, you need to become financially literate such that you are not taken advantage of and that you would be useful in extending the kingdom in financial ways. And it's not hard. It would take one, skipping one episode of any 30-minute TV show in order to come to an understanding of APR, APY. Now, I'm not saying you have to know, know those terms specifically. What I am saying is if you don't know that, if you don't know the principle behind yield and return, then you should learn that principle. It's not that difficult. I wish someone had told me to learn it earlier than I did learn it. Let's just say that. Uh, and finally, the last practical way uh, of beginning to have fine, uh, introductory stewardship, by introductory I mean that which, is, which applies to all believers, um, is identify causes and needs, that is, 
causes in society, causes worldwide in missions, causes locally in missions, and give time and money. One of the ways that you test yourself is with, with greed is, is do you have the tendency when God moves on your heart and, and gives you the impression that you should give or respond to or think about investing in or backing a missionary, whatever, what is your instant motivation? Do you consider it or do you say no, unless God really shows me? That's one of the, one of the simple ways to test you. Whenever I feel tempted to not say yes to a very good godly cause that I feel like I have the capacity to bless, I always know there's something subtle in my heart that's trying to hold on to this money that really isn't a good thing. So those eight steps, which I don't, I'm not saying they're in order necessarily. They could be in order for you. Um, while you are putting those into practice, you have to realize this, that putting off obedience itself is a sin. Even though putting off obedience is a sin, it is not necessary that you achieve financial maturity tomorrow. What matters more is your ability to, through repentance and faith, change the trajectory of how you're relating to money and finance such that you're headed in a godly direction as opposed to an ungodly direction. Some of you, this means you need to change and repent of motivations concerning how you relate to your employer and boss. In fact, that's probably the one of the introductory means. It could be that you have to repent concerning your greed and your lack of willingness to trust God that he is right when he demands 10% of your first the uh, a representative federal tithe of your return. Uh, whatever it looks like, you will not achieve financial maturity tomorrow. And like the best things in life, wine, cheese, cigars, coffee, well, not really coffee, but cho- chocolate, not yet, uh, and age, uh, they're, they're aged. It takes time for them to achieve uh, a, a, a maturity. Without that maturity, they're still okay. You know, if you, if you ate that cheese or drank that wine, it would still be food but it wouldn't be great food. Likewise, the maturity that Christ wishes to bring in your life requires faithfulness over time. You can't just say, oh, well, I got my finances in order this week. I'm going to be blessed and then coast. You have to continually subject your finances to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And temptations, which will show up later in the future, which may not be manifest now, have to be rooted out whenever they show up. For example, Right now, you may not be very rich. You may be, you know, somewhat of a poor person, and that's fine. But when you begin to walk out these strategies, these uh, means by which you may see some very practical uh, means of blessing, you may start to have some savings, you may start to have some material goods, and the very temptations which will cause you to, to hold on to those things, they might not be manifest today. They may only be manifest when you're given a little bit more authority. Practicing stewardship right now, today, no matter whether you have a good job or a bad job, or you have no hope for your finances, is the most uh, easily defined way to place yourself in a position for God to use you in the future in this dimension. I wish and I long for the day when I, my friends, we have people in the church have businesses such that we can pay for the missions in Dayton, cities around here, other, co- other countries. But before I get there, I'm going to be faithful today. 
I want to give large sums to the gospel. I want to beautify, glorify this world and bring forth the kingdom. But until I get there, I'm going to give my little today. Likewise, it's important that we understand all of these things that are manifest in our life concerning physical goods, money, how we relate to finances. They are all done with the understanding that the true riches are not physical goods, but rather the knowledge of Jesus Christ and fellowship with his spirit. If you're not firmly convinced of that, getting these things right will actually be a curse to you. But if you have the right disposition in your heart towards God being the true wealth, the scriptures being better than gold, then adding these things will be a, a blessing to you in your life today. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that you would bless this church, even as you have blessed it already. We pray that you would uh, allow us to further your kingdom through faithful stewardship. God, I pray that you would war against those aspects of our heart that are uh, falsely humble, such that we never see a need for hard work or ambition, but also, Lord, kill at the same time ungodly ambition, which would seek to uh, gain through illicit means and manipulate others. God, I pray that this church would be a tool in your hand to further the kingdom of God financially. In your name, amen.